0: A 2022 Economist Impact research showed that in Asia-Pacific, not all countries are on track to achieve a significant number of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Substantial funding gaps in areas, including healthcare, gender, and climate, require ambitious financing. Increasingly, more financial players are interested in tapping into the potential of ESG and impact investments in the region. Expanding impact investment funds and rising focus on impact mandates among family offices as well as institutional investors showcase progress. Investor networks such as Asia Investor Group on Climate Change and Asian Venture Philanthropy Network serve as platforms for dialogue. To address social and environmental challenges effectively, key stakeholders need to ensure that impact capital is deployed strategically, matching with the right opportunities. What are the opportunities investors can leverage to generate social and environmental value along with economic returns? What is the role of innovative models of business and financing in unlocking the potential of impact-driven investments? Welcome to Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. I'm Bill Arslan. You are listening to the ninth episode of the series, Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty. In our previous episode, we focused on the startup ecosystem in Asia Pacific. In today's episode, we will discuss how to advance impact through investments in the region. The podcast series is supported by Equities First, The opinions of our guests are their own, and editorial control remains with economist impact. Two guests are joining us today to share their expertise on the topic. Joining us from Hong Kong, we have Hannah Lee. Hannah is Head of Asia-Pacific ESG Equity Research at J.P. Morgan, which was ranked the number one ESG research team in 2023 by institutional investor. Prior to this, Hena held various roles at J.P. Morgan across equity sales and research in both London and Hong Kong, having moved to J.P. Morgan in 2013 from the buy side. Hena, welcome to the podcast. From here in Singapore, we have Natasha Garcia. Natasha is the Senior Director of Innovative Finance at Impact Investment Exchange, otherwise known as IIX. She has worked on gender lens investing initiatives and impact measurement work in Asia Pacific, East Africa, and the United States. Natasha also co-founded the Shades of Happiness Foundation, a nonprofit with the mission to empower children from undeserved communities in India through access to quality education. Great to have you join us today, Natasha. If I can start with you first on some definitions. What does impact investment mean to you based on your professional experience, particularly in the context of Asia-Pacific? There are other similar terms used, such as socially responsible investment, ethical investment. I also know that you have some experience around innovative finance. So how does innovative finance fit into the impact investment ecosystem?
1: That's a great question. So firstly, thank you so much for having me here. I think this is a very important and timely discussion. And let me dive right into what impact investment means. And it really, I think, is when you are intentionally making investment decisions with the goal to generate both financial and social or environmental returns, hopefully all three. But in my view, there's three things that would make a financial instrument innovative. First, if they are designed to balance risk, return and impact, very often, we see impact management is done in a silo or it's outsourced. This assumes a lack of understanding that impact can actually really mitigate your risk and stabilize your returns. The second thing is if you go beyond the traditional. ESG tick box checking approach, where the main focus is really on negative screening, on looking at public data and external policies. I feel if you truly want to design an innovative instrument, you need to be using capital to amplify the positive impact and to really make sure that you're able to track, manage, and report on that in a very transparent way. And then finally, I don't think you can be innovative without being inclusive. I come from a hedge fund background, and I know that gender-diverse teams outperform the market by 6%. In the startup ecosystem, you see gender-diverse teams outperform by 21%. So really, there is a lot of research that shows if you embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, it is very much at the core of solving complex sustainable development issues.
0: Henna, if I could come to you on how ESG investing is being deployed in Asia, Natasha highlighted risk management as a way to think about impact investments. So from your experience in a bank, what are some of the social themes on your agenda? And
2: do you think that the emphasis on ESRG varies? Thanks for having me as well on the podcast today. We are speaking to institutional investors uh, globally. In the past, negative screening was quite a clearly adopted majority strategy for a lot of ESG funds here and globally. And actually, we now see ESG integration as the dominant investment style for most ESG funds managed globally. So that probably is, as the name suggests, a deeper integration of ESG considerations into investment decision making. And you can think of ESG a little bit as a scale. At One side would be impact investing, which is what we're talking about today. And at the other end would be, I suppose, investing purely for financial returns with a sliding scale in between, depending on how much a particular manager wants to incorporate ESG and to what end. So in terms of which of the pillars of ESG have more emphasis, G, the governance portion, has always been considered by investors and in many cases can be considered of as having predated ESG, the acronym. Other than that, environment does get a lot of attention. And if you look at what sort of catalyze a lot of the ESG investment around the region, it has been around the last few years when we did see some major commitments in terms of climate from China, Japan, and many other major economies around the region. Social issues are not science-based like environment. And so therefore, that can pose some issues in terms of how you measure impact or how you can quantify certain issues. I think a lot of investors have actively tried to look either for investment ideas that could help with SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, for example, in, in social pillar. But also, we have seen what I would maybe term an increasing financial materiality of some social issues. For example, we've had quite a lot of supply chain reorganisation in this region recently and that has brought with it or highlighted some social issues which I think investors are paying attention to.
0: If we dive deeper into the materiality assessments you are conducting for investments, what are some of the sectors and business models for which social issues
2: are more material in the context of Asia-Pacific? If you look at the... Sustainable development goals that tend to be targeted most by impact investors—they really are decent work and economic growth and no poverty. We see that, or and there have been lots of high-profile cases, for example, in supply chains that are very labour-intensive. And I think that's a theme that's quite relevant to Asia. You know, Asia is a very non homogeneous region, so I think some of those supply chains can be perceived at being higher risk of certain social issues, or that also provides an opportunity for social impact. If you look at a theme like social or financial inclusion, then that has a clear social angle. And here, of course, in Asia, there are lots of companies that might have that delivery of sustainable development wrapped up in their normal business activities. And you can see that, for example, in banks or certain fintech companies,
0: Natasha, coming back to you here to understand the key players in the ecosystem a bit more, from your experience, who are the main stakeholders that are really the key catalysts to channel capital to support business models that contribute to sustainable development?
1: You should be able to design instruments, vehicles, or even any kind of financial structure that is able to attract the right players with the right incentives and then align those incentives to reinforce each other. So. What do I mean by that? I think it's often helpful to create a blended capital structure where you have capital coming from multiple sources public sector, private sector, even philanthropic capital can be blended. And for instance, our Women's Livelihood Bond series, when we issued an orange bond last year, uh, orange bonds focus on gender equality, and it was very much focused on emerging markets. And we're doing this in a very challenging time. Last year in Q4, was a time where the markets were very stressed in the fixed income side. We had, obviously, geopolitical issues, which unfortunately continued to intensify. We had other issues that we were seeing with U.S. Treasury rates rising and just a host of things that were influencing financial markets as a whole. And this doesn't exclude sustainability asset classes either. And what we benefited from the fact is that we had public sector partners, such as development finance institutions, such as the United States Development Finance Corporation and the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. We had the Swedish International Development Agency all come together to back this in different ways. And I think the combination of all of this not only helped us de-risk the security and create a very unique offering in terms of impact, but it also helped us, therefore, attract investment capital from the private sector. So we had large institutions like Naveen, which is a trillion-dollar investment fund, participate in this, We had everything ranging from there to smaller family offices sitting here in in Asia Pacific who bought this and other asset managers, foundations from Europe. So it attracted a wide variety of capital from the private sector side because we had the right blend of capital from the public sector side as well. And I think that's really the beauty of working in this space of sustainability is that there doesn't need to be one single catalyst or source.
0: I think the Orange Bond Initiative is a great concrete example of the inclusivity point we brought up at the beginning. Now, I want to shift our focus a bit to the investment process itself. Hannah, what are some of the criteria
2: you consider when assessing ESG investments impact? So here, I mean, obviously, there are just a lot of metrics that can be used. And as ESG has evolved, there has been a lot more data put out into the ecosystem, which is great for people who are trying to analyze investments from an ESG angle. And there has been a perception that Asia is behind on that. And to be fair, in some places, we are a little, but things have caught up a lot recently in terms of what that data is available. I think when looking at environmental impact Often there can be more availability of data in terms of being able to make investment decisions, which is great. A lot of that in Asia has centered around climate because regulators really have moved to push corporates in particular to release more climate data ahead of potential other environmental parameters. Social issues, there can still be a data challenge to assess what sort of impact investments or portfolios are having. And we are maybe moving more towards these issues being considered financially material as increasing regulation globally to try to incorporate due diligence and concerns around modern slavery or any sort of human or labor rights abuses that could happen in certain supply chains. So there, I think there's been more emphasis on engaging with companies and checking around auditing standards on what their policies are with regards to treatment of workers and certain labour practices. And that's where it's also interesting to explore kind of policies around whistleblowing, etc, which can really also help safeguard against any kind of issues. So that's more on social as a risk management. Then there are some guidelines out there, The podcast series, Shelter
0: from the Storm, Investing in the Air of Uncertainty, is supported by Equities First, a word from our sponsor.
2: Equities First is proud to celebrate 20 years of pioneering progressive capital. We provide access to liquidity in 33 equity markets at favorable terms, while our partners retain 100% of the equity upside appreciation. Your interests are aligned with ours for the long term. Equities First is your solution for redefined financing. For more information, please visit
1: equitiesfirst.com.
0: Can you also give any examples of investment vehicles that catalyze ESG investments? For instance, green, social and sustainability linked bonds come to mind. Are you working with these?
2: Yeah, so well, lots of... Clients do have impact investment vehicles, so mostly impact investment funds. It's still a pretty small part of the market, I think around 3% of what could be considered sort of global sustainable investment assets. But I do know it's a focus area for many clients who are looking to launch funds or have funds operating in the impact space. So that's one area, funds that are maybe still invested in public equities that are focused on social outcomes. If you look generally around impact investment, though, a lot of it has been weighted in the private markets, either in private debt or private equity, and that might be because as a private equity investor, then you have potential to be more involved at the operational level or at the company level to oversee some of that impact. But you also pointed out that we've had green bonds for a while and we are now also starting to see issuances of sustainability-linked bonds in Asia. So that could be one area that grows going forward.
0: Natasha, coming back to you here, what are some of the criteria you consider in the context of impact investments? For instance, when assessing the social and environmental impacts of a social enterprise?
1: The first thing to do would be to see the correlation between risk, return, and impact. We're not looking at impact and isolation of the influence of positive social or environmental benefits on stabilizing financial returns and of de-risking an investment. We've seen this across our women's livelihood bond series, which has been in the market since 2017. We are on our sixth issuance of that fixed income security to date, and we've never had any credit losses. And I think that's a testament to the fact that we are primarily lending to organizations that support gender equality, not just through having women in leadership, but also embracing gender in the DNA of their products, their services, the design of their supply chains and their workforce. That's the risk side, but then there's the return side. And again, even during the COVID-19 pandemic, we're able to offer these returns because these are sectors that get protected because of the value that they're creating for women and communities at the last mile.
0: Inclusivity and gender equality seem really at the core of some of the investment considerations for you. For investments to actually create real impact on the ground, you would need an enabling ecosystem that supports both investors and founders. So in your experience, which Asia Pacific countries' geographies have been at the forefront of creating this enabling environment? And what are they doing right? How can others adopt the best practices? Natasha, we can continue with
1: you on this. When we construct portfolios, it's really bringing together the various elements different countries have to offer. So in our portfolios, we will feature, say, clean energy companies from India, which is really one of the largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions, but is also at the forefront of innovation in many ways. Similarly, we will look at countries like Cambodia and we look at sectors like affordable housing. We will look at countries like Indonesia and we will look at supply chains like agriculture and we will invest strategically in those supply chains because we understand that on the one hand, they are very much subject to climate change, but on the other hand, it is so essential for their food security. And so allowing them and equipping them to adapt to climate change with our capital will have multiple benefits, as Hannah said, on not just one SDG, but on multiple SDGs. We're trying very hard through the Orange Bond Initiative to make sure that we are going beyond just setting standards. And I know that's sort of the norm in this space is you have an asset class, you have a set of principles, which guides investment decisions, and that's important. But you do need that enabling ecosystem. And all of these countries, we're working within them and in some cases with the sovereigns themselves, to see how we can create these gender-empowered ecosystems through the Orange Bond Initiative. So I know that there are orange alliances that are being built in ASEAN. They're also being built in other parts of the world, like the Caribbean. And I think that's going to be really instrumental in making sure that capital is accompanied by the right tools for, say, impact confirmation, where you verify impact at the last mile with end beneficiaries. And things like that allow you to create more transparent and more transformative impact addressing the elephant in the room to mitigate the risks that we see of greenwashing and impact washing.
2: I think despite some of the challenges in terms of measuring impact, which really kind of comes from the fact that there is this potential like common criticism around impact investing because there's a potential trade-off between higher risk and longer time horizons for the impact. So sometimes there can be a bit of a mismatch of expectations there for investors. But being able to standardize and measure some of the impact outcomes could help build a framework for greater adoption of impact investing. What's happening in the EU often has big knock-on effects, especially within the world of ESG investing. And so in the EU, for example, there has been some efforts to try and have a taxonomy. We don't really have many social taxonomies here in Asia. But that some of the taxonomy we do have, which are green taxonomy for climate change-related activities, often they do have a social element to them as well as a clear environmental element especially if you're having a conversation around a just transition for climate change. So transitioning to a lower carbon economy in a way that doesn't leave people behind and then leave any kind of marginalized workforces, et cetera. And then globally, there are other efforts, such as the Impact Measurement Project, and that's also working to try and build a consensus on how to measure, assess and report impacts for people and the environment. And that particular initiative is also supported by the UN, for example. So I think some of these higher level global initiatives are also quite important, rather than just the regional ones.
0: Thanks, Hannah, for
2: outlining that global
0: picture for us as well. And Natasha, would you like to add anything to the challenges mentioned, including measuring the impact, standardizing definitions, and also the fact that impact investments mostly require patient capital, which can create some mismatch of expectations from the investor side. Do you have any other examples of roadblocks that you encountered?
1: So I'll take the uh, example of how the Orange Bond Initiative comprised of a multi-stakeholder steering committee. Uh, As I said, blended finance is important. And so we've made sure the steering committee has Multiple actors from public sector, United States DFC, Australian DFAT, for example, private sector investors, banks like ANZ, law firms like Sherman and Sterling, but also equally importantly, nonprofits like Water.org or hybrid organizations like IAX, which sit at the nexus of many of these that work with communities at the last mile. And because of this sort of approach, the way we have overcome some of these challenges is, I would say the first challenge is, We always think about gender in a silo. We see gender equality as really a cross-cutting solution across the sustainable development goals to solve issues ranging from climate change to sustainable peace through these investments. Our bonds are both orange and they are sustainability bonds, which means they have elements of both green and social. And I think that's a very powerful way to address that sort of silo in which we put impact sometimes, that it always has to focus on one singular type of impact, whereas actually these problems are complex. So, The second set of problems the Orange Bond Initiative is trying to solve is the lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the market. I think while it's wonderful to have global initiatives, it's equally important to make sure that everyone has a seat at the table and a voice at building the narrative. Very often, seats are given more for tokenism than actual value addition. So through the Orange Bond Initiative, there are actually 76,000 signatories across the world, and many of them come from the global south and have been instrumental in developing what the Orange Bond initiative will look like. And the last, I would say, challenge that we face is the growing concerns that investors have around greenwashing and impact washing. One of the ways we are mitigating this risk is through a tool. IX has a tool called IX Values, which allows you to use a data-driven approach. We use technology to reach individuals at the last mile through simple mobile surveys to make sure that we are able to actually collect data from the communities.
0: This is a great example of how technology can be leveraged to measure and track impact. Over the course of our conversation, climate change has been coming up as a key thematic area for investments, which is not surprising because most Asia-Pacific countries are particularly vulnerable to the climate change-induced natural disasters. And recently, we've been seeing the negative consequences on the ground as well funding climate change solutions is especially necessary and urgent. Hannah, what is your experience around climate adaptation and mitigation as an investment team?
2: You can really see that climate mitigation has by far and away been the more invested in area. Climate adaptation, which... I sort of consider as a more inherent social theme because actually climate adaptation, unlike the mitigation piece, which is a bit more science-based, really is around technologies and businesses when we're talking about taxonomy and things to urgently cut emissions. Adaptation, by contrast, is about preparing society to deal with some of those worst impacts of climate change. And as you rightly point out, Asia is a very exposed region to the impacts of climate change, even if we do manage to meet all of the commitments and stay within the 1.5 degree warming versus pre-industrial levels, we will still collectively have to live with the effects of climate change. And so I think that has sparked an interest on how to prepare for this, particularly amongst investors who are now also looking beyond the traditional mitigation sectors for investment opportunities that have this attractive proposition because A, they, um, you know, can be potentially attractive businesses and it can give you a bit of diversification if you're running a climate portfolio that has been quite focused on mitigation, which will lead you into certain sectors.
0: These all go back to the risk management point we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation as well in terms of incorporating climate change risks into investment decision making. Hannah, you highlighted the interconnectedness between the social and environmental considerations of ESG. Natasha, I know you're a specialist in gender lens investing. How does gender relate to climate change-focused investments? Do they reinforce each other in any ways?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think one of the most important things that we learned through the Women's Advocate Bond series is we go back every year and we speak with the women for transparency reasons. It's a process called impact confirmation. And so we do surveys and interviews and data collection with women at the last mile. And I think Hannah is completely on point when she says that there is a very strong social element to climate change. As I said, it's not, however, just about thinking about women being disproportionately impacted by climate change, which unfortunately, majority of the literature focuses on that because they are so closely linked with the problems and They are therefore also very, very well positioned to be part of the solutions. Our upcoming issuance, which is going to be closed in a few months' time, is really attracting investment capital from investors across the world. And women uh, being empowered to solve some of these challenges could also mean improved food security and water security in the region. In fact, agriculture and water are two of our big sectors in our upcoming issuance.
0: That's all we have time for today. Thank you, Hannah and Natasha, for sharing your views and insights. And thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. The series is supported by Equities First and is part of Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. If you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any work from Economist Impact, email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. Please make sure to subscribe so that you receive updates when new podcast episodes become available. From the editorial team at Economist Impact, thank you for listening.